Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings. And well met. My name is Aubrey Sitterson. If you've been enjoying these tales from beyond the eastern border, you should do yourself a favor and check out my ongoing sword and sorcery podcast serial, Scald. That's S K A L D. Scald. Scald is as unrelenting as the Soviet winter. It's as bizarre as party-approved pop music, and it's as vicious as the wild boars that Kristaps has to fight off nightly. In other words, it's right up your alley. A new episode of this nasty, brutal, barbarian fantasy epic is made available each and every Tuesday on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podomatic. Just search for Scald or hit up AubreySitterson.com for links to everything. There are even collections available on Amazon if you're of the prose persuasion. Greetings, comrades. And welcome to the Eastern Border. I have heard that this is the National Poetry Month in the United States. So, here's a poem for you, my listeners. I'm not a poet, and I just translated this to English. But here you go. My thoughts, they run around various routes at night. Forwards, sideways, sometimes circling. My roots, I feel that they're not growing as they should. Even in fertile ground, they wither and die. My people, they're withering out all over the world. Without its own country, my nation shatters and fights between itself. My nation, it's withering out all over the world. Not even on its own land it's growing as it should. God, help us. God, help us to our Latvian nation. Bring it back home to the shores of Daugava. Bring it back home. This is the English translation of some of the lyrics of Manai Tautai, or To My Nation, which was sung by Ieva Akurater. She performed this song at the festival Liepais Dzintars, or the Amber of Liepai, Liepai being the birthplace of rock in Latvia, 
when she performed this song at this festival in 1988, the entire audience rose to its feet and, in tears, sang along. It was a particularly noteworthy event, as the hall was full of Soviet militianeri and folks from the Soviet army. We'll get to this particular story later, but there's a reason why 1988 is such an important year. It is a breaking point. The rattling of the cage had become really, really serious by that point. If previously the reforms were controlled and performed according to plan and the Moscow government had no reason to panic, then, in 1988, they suddenly had every reason to throw their arms in the air and start shouting just about like they don't care. Which is a bad joke, I know. Like I mentioned in the Very Old Men episode, both of our national independence movements were made in this year. Latvian National Front and Latvian National Independence Movement. They were the political movements, which grew out of my previously mentioned environmental organizations. These were purely political ones oriented towards the Latvian independence. Well, how did it become possible? You see, 1988, like I said, was a breaking point. And all of this story of Latvian independence truly begins in January 31st of 1988. When the television program Lavakar, or Good Evening, was first aired. It was run by three people. Jan Shipkevits, who now owns stocks in the SVH radio. Uh, Oyars Rubenis, who used to be the director of our National Theatre for a while. And another current businessman, Edvins Inkans. Those three people uh, ran this program Lavakar for many years even after we gained independence, but it started out as an investigative program. Something like your 60 Minutes, as far as I know what 60 Minutes is. It's an investigative news program that also touches some interesting subjects. And in this period of Glasnost, all the interesting subjects were nationalism, critique of the government, and just, you know, things which could be made better. Sometimes even just every everyday things like fixing the potholes or something. But they became extremely popular in no time. So they were kind of watched over, but also really listened to. They had a lot of power in the media, and they basically managed to achieve that this Latvian National Front and Latvian National Independence Movement were allowed to exist. Because they supported them, they said, yeah, this is according to the law. Like previously, all the reforms were legal under this law. So they supported this. And they always reminded everyone that, hey, no, no, we're we're here, we're good. We're operating just as Gorbachev wants us, right, Gorby? And Gorby clenches his teeth and has to say, yeah, all right. Because he has, own, he has his own troubles in Moscow by that point. So they, together, by publicizing these parties and together working with them, they managed to actually achieve some changes, like some real changes for the first time. Of course, almost nobody was speaking directly about just just dissolving the Soviet Union, no. At that time, we just kind of wanted to leave it, because technically, in the constitution of the Soviet Union, there were some articles written about the fact that the member states 
could leave it. Obviously, if in earlier times no one even thought about even thinking about this, then now it kind of started to look like a real possibility. And you had to work hard and put all your effort in it, but you but you could do it, but you just have had to make it look like you were just doing things the Soviet way, and we're still Soviet, but we want this independence and some liberty here and there. But the Soviet power over Latvia, the higher council power, which was running Latvia and territory at the time, they just thought, okay, we're, we're going to give them some freedoms, and then it's going to get better. They really hoped that by giving Latvians some freedoms, they would just calm us all down, and that the Soviet Union would remain, as it were, just like Gorbachev intended. The problem of how it all went down started with the fact that they gave us freedoms for which we which we wanted for such a long time, but they just enabled so much more ways of breaking apart and becoming completely different than a, than I think Augustakapadom or the highest council, highest Soviet, ever expected. And I'll be talking about the particular liberties and freedoms that they actually gave to Latvian people in 1988 even before the first democratic election here. For starters, in the 25th of March, in 1988, this higher council allowed to publicly remember the great memorial event for the memory of the people who were deported to Siberia in 25th of March of 1949. Now, to explain this, even though we will get to Stalin in a later series of this show, uh, I have to explain to you what exactly happened in the 25th of March in 1949. You see, in 1949, in the January of it, 29th of January, a top-secret USSR Minister Council's decision was was made. Completely top-secret, and it was just for inner inner usage of, of the party in Cheka. It leaked out a bit, but it was terrible on its own as well. People were preparing and running away. The problem is, unlike 1940, they literally had uh, less options to actually run somewhere. In this decision, various categories of the people who would be sent to Siberia from the Baltics were kind of postulated. First off, people who would need who would need to be sent to Siberia were kulaks and their families. Technically, kulak was just a farmer who refused to go to kolkhoz. Not the very poorest of farmers, no, but you were a kulak essentially if you had, say, a horse or a cow. Or that you weren't working completely alone on your field, but you were just maybe hiring a farmhand or two. That meant you were a terrible enemy of the people, exploitative capitalist, and if you didn't want to join the kolkhoz, because obviously you were working way more efficiently on the farm, well, you are now an enemy of the nation, and you and your family would be just sent to Siberia, and all of your property would be confiscated. These people usually were richer because they just worked harder. In Latvia, we had this agrarian reform in the 20s. The land was split out, split up almost evenly, and these people really did work harder than the rest of them because the rest of them were already driven into kolkhoz. Because forming of kolkhoz didn't happen in a single day. Uh, first off, it was voluntary, and then some people joined them, some people were forced to join, but not all of them joined. So... 
in this 1949 20th of January, it was finally decided that, you know, enough is enough. Those efficient peasants who dare to own a horse in our beautiful farmers and workers nation, no guys, these people are going to Siberia. And, yeah, all of their lands confiscated added to Kolkhoz, you know, the usual. They were sent to Siberia together with, uh, <clears throat> quote here, with bandits that would be partisans, that would include partisans too, and illegalist families. Illegalist families were those who were living in the territory of Latvian SSR, but weren't legally allowed to be there. You know, escaped people from Russian or Ukrainian kolkhoz who were just moved to Latvia, illegally. That is, they weren't sent there, they would have just come on their own. And, and that's kind of paradoxical, because the Soviet Union later on just tossed in a huge amount of, the, of people from other nations here in Latvia, but even that was forced. Because even if you did come here from Russia or Ukraine, but you weren't forced to come here, you just arrived, at this time it was illegal. Together with those, all of the, all of the bandits, and when I'm speaking bandits, I'm talking about mostly national partisans, not the kind of people who would steal some bread or murder people or, you know, thievery or something like that. No, those people went to common prisons. Well, these bandits would be just sent off to Siberia because they were mostly partisans or doing something anti-Soviet. And, you know, if you, by this point in 1949, if someone in your family, say a second cousin, would be a bit more fervent nationalist than you are, fighting a guerrilla war, because there are guerrillas, not partisans, yeah, I, I meant guerrillas. I hope I hope it didn't sound uh, too silly, but uh, what I meant is that here here we call them part partisani. So uh, yeah, what I meant was guerrillas. I apologize. So if your second cousin is a guerrilla resisting the Soviet occupation, uh, then you would be sent to Siberia. If your second cousin had been caught two years ago fighting against the Soviet Union, somehow resisting it, listening to. Oh, I don't know, Radio Free Europe, sending letters to Sweden. But, you know, he would have been caught two years earlier in 1947 and shot. Then in 1949, you also would be sent to Siberia. Because, you know what, let's not live all sorts of, you know, weird relatives or friends of guerrillas or, like they said, bandits who may have shot. Just, you know, we need to make more space here. Send them all off to Siberia. The third part was the legalized bandits, as they were called. And, of course, all their families. Everyone who continued to do anything anti-Soviet. Basically, a legalized bandit were, was a person who already had been to prison for a while. You know, you had been sent to Siberia in 1940. Then the war came. Then, I don't know, maybe you did something good and actually survived Gulag. Then you came back. You started living again. But 1949 comes, and you and your family are on the route straight back to Siberia. Vorkutsk. Until morale proves, obviously. And also, the fourth and final point of these people who were, who were deported in 1949 were <clears throat> the family members of those people who supported the actions of the bandits. That means that even if you know someone whose second cousin, whom he has met once or twice in, the, in his lifetime, is now a gorilla, and you're not saying to the authorities that, look, look, you should send this man to Siberia for his second cousin, then you too would obviously send to Siberia. That's a lot of people. 
Now, specifically in the decision, it was stated that uh, those family members who were, weren't adults yet, the minors, and those who weren't able to work, that is, people in the age of retirement, or really young kids, or, I don't know, war veterans who would become disabled, people who just couldn't work. Uh, those and the, the minors wouldn't be sent to Siberia, but they could voluntarily choose to go together with their families. We're the most human nation on the planet Earth, aren't we now? But, of course, that was the theory. But, obviously, it didn't happen like that in the real world. If you were at a place and your family was just sent to Siberia, they had about an hour to 15 minutes to leave. And if you weren't home at that time, you would be probably sent to Siberia. Now, if you managed not to be home at that time and arrived later you'd find out that you no longer live there and that all of your family had been, like, sent away. And if you would just ask too many questions, then, well, we have plenty trains. And Vorkutsk is a large place. As a result, from all the people who were sent to gulags in Siberia, the 28.6% were children until the age of 16. The inhabitants of the Baltic countries were sent away based upon lists which were confirmed by the councils, the Soviets, of various United Republics ministries. The executive part of the deportations was done by the Ministerstvo Gosudarstvenne Bezopasnosti, the State Safety Ministry. Because of the fact that such a large amount of people needed to be deported, 4,500 Soviet soldiers were transported to Latvia to aid this process, and 4,350 in Estonia. In total... 7,488 families with 20,713 people were sent away from Estonia. 9,518 families with 31,917 people were sent away from Lithuania. And 13,624 families, which in total would amount to 42,149 people, were sent away from Latvia. They all went to Siberia, and some went to gulags, and some were assigned to various kolkhoz attached to gulags. But it's interesting to note that in the March deportations, because they happened in the 25th of March, the decision was made in January, but it was a March deportation, there was a place in Latvia, one district, Lievardis district, where no one was sent away from. It is, it is considered that it is because the local kolkhoz of that district, large places, or bear slayer, was run by this excellent man, Edgar Skalinch, who is still remembered today as a hero, who also later, during the Khrushchev era, managed to take three Khrushchev and actually not grow worthless scorn in Latvian circumstances. As you can obviously understand, this was a major tragedy for the Baltic states. And boom! We're finally allowed to remember that. We were finally allowed to talk about that. I'm pretty sure that uh, this improved the morale more than the deportations themselves. Just think about this. This is one of the greatest tragedies in the Baltic countries. It happened after World War II. And now, for some reason, the Higher Council decided that, oh, you know, they're going to remember these people. And then what? (laughs) Then, like, we would not want to get out of the USSR. So, after this attempt, 
of increasing the morale of Latvian citizens and Lithuanian and Estonian had miserably failed, the Soviet Union decided that, hey, uh, how about we try again, guys? So, in the 15th of April, in 1988, the Latvian Soviet government, the highest higher council, allowed us to do something which we had wanted to do all throughout during the Soviet occupation. They officially allowed for the Latvians to celebrate our Ligo festival once again. I have spoken about Ligo during the Soviet culture episode, where I described in detail exactly how they all were trying to stomp it out and how it was extremely nationalistic. So listen to that one, I won't repeat myself, otherwise I'll be repeating myself all throughout this episode. But what you need to know right now is that it's a nationalistic festivity. It is, it's a Latvian tradition since, I don't know, 8th, 9th century, maybe earlier. It's a traditional Latvian festivity de- dedicated to drinking beer, eating cheese, and singing folk songs. And doing all sorts of traditional activities, such as having a huge bonfire, jumping over it, dancing around it, spending all night up. You know, the midsummer stuff. Our midsummer stuff is so great that I even mentioned in the, that in the info part of this podcast. So they decided that by allowing us to celebrate this, we might just, you know, calm down and do things all right. And until June, when this festivity is celebrated, because it's celebrated from the night of the 23rd of June to the 24th of June, it kind of calmed down and it looked like it would all be okay. But then, in the 1st and 2nd of June of 1988, in the communal union of the Latvian SSR Writers Union and other creative unions, the Soviet analogued guilds, Mr. Mavrik Wolfson happened. Mavrik Wolfson was a devout communist, a Jewish communist, and he was, <clears throat> he was one of those Gorbachev's new people, he firmly believed uh, in a socialism with a human face, as they used to call it in other friendly neighborhood countries. And he firmly stood for all of this glasnost and perestroika and had a firm belief that it all worked. It was because of people like him that Gorbachev actually believed and thought that finally, you know, we could have a Soviet Union that could be nice to people, that could change, and that we wanted to be in the Soviet Union, just not in the Soviet Union that we were used to. He firmly believed those ideals, and after the Soviet Union collapsed until his death in 2004, Mavrik Wilson was still in one of the more pro-socialist parties of Latvia. But at that time, at the 1st and the 2nd of June, he got famous as a high-ranking member of the Communist Party for doing probably the most nationalistic thing humanly possible. You see, Mavrik Wolfson decided that, hey, they can celebrate Ligua, and they are now remembering all the terrible things that Stalin did, and obviously the Soviet Union is just admitting that they did terrible things just so people could trust this aggressor much more. So, he blatantly, in this combined congress of all of the Latvian creative unions, blatantly and nicely said that the Soviet Union had occupied Latvia in 1940. This was the first case since the Soviet occupation when someone had actually admitted the fact from the communist and authority side that yes, uh, what happened here was an occupation, that we were annexed violently and didn't join by our own choice. It was said by a communist. 
Now, obviously, this caused a major nationalist uproar, a bit of a bit of panicking in the higher echelons of the party, and the Ligua festivities, or midsummer festivities, which were just allowed in the April in 1988, became the utmostly nationalistic midsummer midsummer festivities ever. From a gesture which was originally intended, like I said, of just giving us some false hope and just, you know, calming us down by giving us some liberties, it spectacularly backfired. This Ligo was just a continuation of the celebration of Maverick Wilson's speech. It just happened to explode all in the Soviet Union's faces. Starting from that moment, in the 10th of July, that Latvian national, national independence movement was made, Soon after that, Latvian National Front, everyone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Went completely crazy about independence. So... I suppose, thank you, Mr. Mavericks Wolfsons. Afterwards, obviously, he was quite sad about what had happened, because when he mentioned this occupation fact, he never really intended to say that Latvia should be independent again, as far as I understood from reading his speech. But really, props to the man. By this point, as everyone was just ballistically nationalistic, Uh, the Soviet Union decided that, hey, you know, they're hyper-nationalistic. How about we calm them down and, hey, uh, you will now be allowed to um, use your own old Latvian flag. And they allowed us to use this flag because in the 27th of September, 1988, after June, after July, in the July the, the National Independence Movement was made, And all of these events previously, the Latvian SSR Higher Council, and it's still the Communist Higher Council. There are a lot of national communists which are, like, seeing which way the wind blows. So they're slowly working towards their goal of uh, Gorbachev's reforms. But they're starting to think that, hey, it suddenly, slowly looks like that maybe, you know, we could eventually, in some five or ten years, move to an independent country. Like I mentioned, uh, Mr. Gorbanov's thought and an episode about Stilgorby. So I think they allowed this to happen because they just wanted to be on the winning side, for the most part. But yeah, on the 27th of December of 1988, they announced publicly that the Latvian people, Latvian people have had their cultural historical symbols, and that, you know, all those pro-Sovietish symbols were, would be again replaced by those. 
Because, you know, we are still in the Soviet Union, but Latvian people have their symbols, and Estonians and Lithuanians have their own symbols, so why should we just all use this unified imagery of hammer and sickle? Let's use our own stuff. Oh, and we did. Before we move up to the crazy parts, which happen later, which will lead to Eva Akurata and her wonderful song, let's have a short break and hear some information from the lovely editor, Alice. Greetings, this is Alice. Firstly, thank you for all of your views and emails and support, and criticism. We take your criticism and advice very seriously, and we're happy that people actually write to us on how to make the show better. Sorry that we can't reply to all of you immediately, it's been pretty busy in these parts, and we actually had a visitor from New York who stayed here for a few days, and Christophs was also involved in an investigative journalism class brought here by Newsplex, the New England Center of Investigative Reporting and University of South Carolina. We're sure that this will help the quality of the show as well. In other news, our Patreon supporters just got what we promised. Our Rocky IV live commentary track is available for download on our Patreon page for those who support us. And if you've donated to us through PayPal, drop us an email and we will send you a download link as well. We plan on doing commentary tracks for other Cold War movies as well for our supporters. If you haven't supported us in the past but you want to enjoy us, you can go to patreon.com slash the eastern border and become a patron of the show. Or, if you don't want to commit to us so thoroughly, we recommend you visit our homepage. That would be the uh, easternborder.lv. The easternborder.lv and send us some of your spare change. Of course, you can also follow us on Facebook by searching The Eastern Border or on Twitter at eastern underscore border and we're really active there. Don't forget to tell about us to your friends and family and grandma and give us reviews on iTunes. And, as we're active on social media and we have listeners from many countries, we picked up some friends along the way. Now, they're not sponsors, we're not getting any money from them, they're just nice small companies, which we think would interest our listeners, and here's two of them. The first one is the Latvian Lunchroom in Adelaide, Australia, located just in the central market and owned by a family of Latvian Australians. Our listeners asked us where they can get a taste of the famous Latvian beer in our national cuisine, we looked it up, and hey, Australians got lucky first. If we'll find other such places, we will mention them, of course. If you go there from what I've seen in their menu, available online, their best beer is Meetabas. Second one is an app called Sandbox Military, with two X's, so Sandbox Military. Sandbox is a mobile app for service members and veterans to reconnect with those that they served with. Simply add the dates you served in a unit and you can stay in touch with other veterans. Sandbox was created by Marine Corps General Ray E. Tool Smith as a way to better connect our military community. As we have a lot of military and ex-military listeners, I think you'd be interested, so go and check them out. And finally, of course, our friends at the Dark Myths Collective, who make excellent shows and are amongst the finest podcasters on the planet. If you like this show, you'll love other shows that can be found on our homepage darkmyths.org. Aubrey Sitterson, which you heard in the intro from the Scald podcast, is also a member, and he's an excellent podcaster from a show that I really enjoy, and I'll let him finish what he started in the intro section, and then we'll be back to Kristaps, talking a bit more about 1988. This is not a book on tape. Every one of these more than 50 episodes was written to be spoken aloud. It's also not a radio serial. 
There are no sound effects or music cues or even voices other than mine. It's a spoken word epic in the style of the Scandinavian bards known as skalds. And best of all, I do every one of these 30-plus minute episodes in one single flawless take. Right now, there are more than 50 episodes of Scald, and that is a lot of story. It's a lot of the one true king of men, Maul, rampaging through the sundered worlds on a quest to take back the throne, his throne, the birthright that was stolen from him. But please, don't get overwhelmed. And don't even feel like you need to start from the beginning. Instead, just download the most recent episode, or any other that strikes your fancy. Then gird your loins, and get ready for some weird, hateful, psychedelic sword and sorcery action. Just the way you like it. That's Scald. S-K-A-L-D. Search for it on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Or find it streaming at scald.podomatic.com. And remember, just like happiness, listening to Scald is mandatory. And welcome back to the show. Here we are, on the 7th of October of 1988. It's a nice autumn day, but not because of the weather. The mood in Riga is full with hope and energy. The reforms have been going strong so far. And everyone has read the last week's newspaper, the Soviet youth. The current... 188th number has come out in the 1st of October, and there's an article there written by a journalist, Arnold Klotinch. He remarks how the national leaders and reformers have rekindled the spirit of the Latvian people. And not only Latvian, no, this wind of change has swept through all over the Baltics. He mentions a certain event that has happened in September in Estonia. They had a protest that was a concert at the same time. It gathered... 300,000, quote, disciplined Estonian patriots and reformers, end quote, there, including the Estonian Communistic Party's Central Committee leader, Vaino Veljas. They had demonstrated that people want reforms and that they are no longer just the local population, but instead should be treated as a nation. Klotinch mentions in this article that there will be a similar thing here in Latvia, set on the 7th of October, which, as I remind you, is where we are on the timeline right now. This event is going to be called... It's going to be called the National Manifestation for a Just State, and all the political activists are going to be there. Also, all of the Latvia's famous rock and pop singers are going to be there, and all of our choirs, of which we have many, as, you know, we still have our national core singing mega festival every four years, so a lot of people here are in those. So it's the 7th of October, and everyone is waiting on what's going to happen. Almost nobody is in the center of Riga. Everyone is in Park's open-air theater. Oh, and they're waiting. They kind of know what's going to happen, and are excited about it, but there's still some uncertainty in the air. For one, we still legally can't ask for full independence, not yet. No. For now, it's just autonomy. For now. 
there are a lot of speeches on this theater, which is which is chock full with people. And the speeches are basically, well, they're made by the people who work in Lavakar and other national leaders. But the speeches are essentially asking for what would be a radical version of the Gorbachev's reforms when taken to the extremes. There's lots of sort of Latvian spiritualism involved in the sense that there are speeches asking for the denunciation of state atheism and oppression of religion as religion had a large part in all of our regaining of independence. And uh, <clears throat> and the people are just talking about this Latvianness, how it's like to be a nation again, how we have grown as a people, how we should carry on with this, how we shouldn't let our spirit to die. Also, everyone's talking about this Latvian National Front. It is their formal opening ceremony, they're going to officially create themselves legally in the next two days, 8th and the 9th of October. Of course, the people there have been active before, and everybody knows what Latvian what Latvi National Front is, but this they have chosen this, this moment to become completely official and just legalize themselves. Obviously, there are Latvian flags everywhere. And I have to mention here that in this manifestation... Uh, there are people from Lithuania and Estonia there. They're waving their flags as well. There are various posters saying things like, we want the rule of law in this country, and we want more democracy, and... I don't know. <clears throat> we want more democracy, and possibly... <laughs> possibly some sausage in the stores too, I presume. <laughs> but this wasn't about the sausages. This was about the emotional statement. In the middle of all of these politician speeches about how we want autonomy and how Latvians should understand their Latvianness and how we should be more patriotic. The centerpiece happens. The huge emotional bomb. Eva Akuratera comes on the stage. She's already been to Liepāja Dzintars by this point. That happened in August. And although the politicians have been roundabout about all of this independence thing, it's obvious that she... Clearly, is not. And this song, the very same song whose lyrics I tried to translate to you in the beginning of this episode, that's played. The people, all of the people are just singing along, standing, waving flags with tears in their eyes. Politicians might be polite and everything, but we're just there. I would say, and a lot of people who were there say, it was something like in uniform prayer. This song states that we're ready. We want to push back. That this this is the final push. This is where we stand now. This is how we feel. This song is there, even though there are a lot of other interesting and very patriotic songs in that area. But this song is there, and it's called The Zeitgeist. I'll put a YouTube link to this song, by the way, on the show notes for this episode. It's very emotional. Even though I doubt you'll be able to understand it unless you speak Latvian, but give it a listen anyways. And try to catch a glimpse of the feeling which the song is trying to convey. Besides Akuratara and the politicians and the national leaders, there were also people from academia and just common people requesting things. Some of which might seem a bit weird, but actually were extremely important during the time. For example, let's talk about education. In this manifestation... One of the student leaders, Maris Sant, spoke 
in the name of not only the Latvian university, but for all the students in Latvia. Now, the largest problems mentioned by him were, firstly, the extremely limited choices in the study process. The students in the Soviet Union didn't pick their own curriculums. They had no A or B or C parts, no credit points. There were just set classes and set programs, and you couldn't change up anything. Secondly, the communist thought control over the studies. There was no real discussion about anything, no real philosophy. All of the classes were basically limited to dialectics. Of course, you could get some studies, uh, some philosophy in some some culture, in the, some specialized classes, of which there were few and far between, but mostly everything, even Plato, was studied under the comparison to Marxism-Leninism and how he went into this system of thought. There was also a special class called Marxism-Leninism, and you had to pass an exam at the end of each year, and if you didn't pass your Marxism-Leninism exam, well, then you can't be an engineer or a history teacher or a doctor. Everyone had to pass Marxism-Leninism, and even if you discuss, and there was, like I said, no discussion of any other way of thinking, except through the lens of this, which angered students, obviously. Also, there was this militarization of everything. The civil, ing- the civil defense classes, which also were mandatory for all students, involved learning how to put on your gas mask really quickly, involved uh, physical tests. It was called the GDA, Gattaus Darba Meissardzibai. You, for example, if you were, even you could be a genius engineer, but you just had to run those 10 miles in a set amount of time, or you would fail, even at the university. I'm not saying that any physical education is bad, it's just that in the university, in my opinion, you should be able to opt out of this program if you want to, for example, if you can't do it because of your physical abilities. And, of course, students were really tired when after a hard day of studying, like I said, for example, how to be a doctor, they had to also learn how to disassemble and assemble their Kalashnikovs. And if they failed that, well then, they didn't pass. Students demanded a true humanities faculty with some actual discussion in there. Obviously with the argument that if Marxism-Leninism is as good as, it, as the state said it would be, then, obviously, in a fair discussion, it should win out. It's a nice cover-up, but, you know, we had to use some argumentation. Oh, and another thing was that they demanded a cybernetics faculty, because the USSR had been lagging behind in this area, which was viewed by the academia as one of the reasons why it also had started to lag behind in the space race and also in the economy in general. The Latvian university was a mess, and not only ideologically. They also wanted some responsibility in the economics, literally demanding to be allowed to not spend money on useless things. Oh, and by the way, they wanted the permission to allow people who don't make it into the government-sponsored study groups to be allowed to study by paying for the studies themselves. That is, people demanded that they should be allowed to pay for universities. As, and this demands some explanation, as, sure, the university itself, and the, this highest form of education, was completely free in the USSR. But, because of the economy, and because, you know, the programs and the work there, and, for example, materials for laboratories, all, and all the equipment, 
they actually cost resources. But as the government is supposed to pay for every one of the students there with the economy that's that's really struggling, they just couldn't afford that many people actually studying. So the the amount of people that that actually went to university was quite low, lower than you would expect, because hey, the study the studies are free, but it's really hard to get in. Oh, and if you didn't get accepted in one of these very limited vacancies for studies, well then, then you go to the army. Oh, and those who had already been to the army had bonus points in the separate entry exams. Essentially, it was a system which really geared on getting as much guys straight after high school in the army as possible. So, people tried to avoid that thing a lot. Hey, I know a person who tried who faked his way out of the army by by mixing up his urine samples to prove that he had some sort of an illness. The problem was when he mixed those up and it turned out that he could give in, in a female a pregnant woman's urine sample. So that didn't work out quite well for him. Then again, all of these limited spots in universities, I think it's a thing to think about when we're talking about the socialization of the higher education system. There's always less spots for students when the government is bound to completely pay for education. Then again, students are weird folk in general. Atis Zakatistov's PhD in a radio interview remembered that during this time there were quite a few physical confrontations between Latvian and Russian students many of which were paid for by the Communist Party and the KGB. As I have to admit, quite a lot of the Russians living there at the time actually supported the ideas of independence, or, at the very least, some form of autonomy. He remembers how during one of the numerous small protests, a fight broke out. Basically, some students were outside smoking, and they decided just on the spot that, hey, we're going to skip the next lecture and just hold up some posters and wave some ho- some self-made flags. So they did it. That was the mood at the time. You should understand that after my description of the manifestation. And apparently another group of uh, R- Russian students, because there were two separate groups of uh, students in each university. Over here, uh, one group was always Latvian, the other one was Russian. So the gr- So the Russian students saw this, and some of them were quite aggressive, and Mr. Zakatistovs remembers that there were some people that he hadn't seen before, which just pays into this idea that some of them were paid for. So some of those students just came up and tried to tear down these posters and just mess up these students. Obviously, one thing led to another, and a fight broke out just across the street uh, from the history faculty where Zakatistovs was studying at the time. It started out small, but as he recalls, a wall against wall was the end result. Literally, like one of those medieval battles. People just clinching their elbows and standing in front of them and protesting because other students just came in to help. And those protesters, well, most of them didn't actually went into this. There's, they were trying to push each other out. There was some punching of faces. But mostly there was this chain of people trying to block the other group, which were like in a phalanx formation trying to break through and just beat up those students with posters and their drinks. Well, it was broken up when when some teachers from the faculty actually came down and gave them some stern looks and threatened to call the, threatened to call the militia. 
but thankfully it ended well as no one got majorly hurt. But such tense confrontations were really common during that era. But like I said, students are weird people, and this is a very patriotic time for our nation. But yeah, we've come to the end of 1988. And we have entered 1989 here on this huge, massive wave of patriotism. I'm cutting off the timeline here, because the next year involves events in Moscow and other Baltic states, on which I'll have to take a separate look at. So this really doesn't fit in this episode so much. Next episode, coming out in early May, will be about the family life, childhood, and entertainment in the USSR. With a special place to reserve to talk about chess. До свидания, товарищи. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.